Hello, hello, and welcome back to Uneducated, the show where we feel dumb so you don't have to. I'm your host, Cami Scott, and today is a very highly requested episode. We're talking about sex, baby. I had the pleasure of chatting with Casey Tanner. She's a queer-identified therapist and consultant. Her consultant work funds projects that provide free and low-cost sex therapy and educational services to the LGBTQ plus and BIPOC communities through individualized services, online courses, and her incredible and educational Instagram, at Queer Sex Therapy. Enjoy the episode, and as always, if you do, please don't forget to rate and subscribe. It really helps us out. Enjoy. I'm so excited to talk to you. I, you know, I get a lot of advice questions throughout Mm -hmm. the day, and there are a few topics that I shy away from. And one of them is definitely sex and like intimacy in general. I, I, on one side, I don't feel qualified to discuss it. I can only (laughs) give my experience and my interpretation. Um, and yeah, I don't know. I think as a gay woman, I have gotten so many men and trolls asking me inappropriate questions. So I think I'd rather just answer nothing than Mm-hmm. give them any kind of information, even when it's a genuine person right. seeking help. So it's hard to I'm, know the difference though, between yes. the people who are genuinely seeking help and the ones who are being gross. Exactly. That's a real dilemma. I, I'm sure you deal with on the daily. Um, oh, yes. Before we get into, actually let's do our trivia question. Um, okay. We do a little segment here on an, on an uneducated. I, I will eventually not stumble over that little <laughs> intro. Or maybe you uneducated. should always stumble over it. I do. It's so your thing. It. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. If we, what would the podcast be without it? Right. Um, but yeah, just to get everyone comfortable, even my experts on the show don't know everything. So, mm-hmm. but you might, you might know this answer. Um, our question is, what is the third sign of the Zodiac? Okay. I feel like I should know this, but I don't. <laughs> I, so, okay. So one thing I know is that you are a Pisces. Is that right? That is correct. Because I am a Pisces. Sign. Yes. Okay. Mm-hmm. So we got, I think we can figure this out. Actually, I think we can, because if we're the, oh, we're the last sign shoot. Okay. Yeah. We're the last sign. So it is from like when's your birthday? It's like mid February to yeah. late March, February right? 21st. Yeah. Okay. So, okay. May, so probably June babies would be the third okay. sign. I think, I don't know the yeah. dates. That's my problem. Okay. Like so we've got switches. Aries right now. Yes. And then we've got the Tauruses who come. I sure. <laughs> but the May, I'm like, is it, is it, um, I know my, one of my best friends birthday oh is beginning of June. Um, Steph, if you're listening, don't hate me. What is your I birthday? know. I also June have a 4th. friend that, what are you? I think she's a Gemini because I remember joking about like how much hate Geminis get, <laughs> but is, but is that the third sign? Oh gosh, I can't believe we have two queer women here and we can't answer this question. We, this is pathetic. We should be embarrassed. <laughs> I am embarrassed. So do we get to find out the answer or yes, I'm going to, I have the answers on a separate page. Um, I'm going to go with Gemini just cause I know, Okay. I know my friend's birthday's in June. I don't know if that's Mm -hmm. the third sign. And I, I, God, I'm so sorry, Steph. I don't know. I think you're Gemini. I don't know. I'm going to, I'm going to guess Libra because it just feels right. Oh shoot. That does feel right. I'm going off of gut purely though. Okay. Okay. The answer is. Oh God, do I not have the answer again? No, Gemini. <laughs> it is a Gemini. Bravo, bravo. Okay. You know what? We didn't do so bad. <laughs> your friend your friend can now know that like you have been paying attention yeah. and my friend now knows that I haven't been. So. <laughs> Whoops. Well, maybe Let's it's see. like a, maybe it's a, a different date in there because it, it throws yeah. me off that it's not just by month. It's like, mm, I don't know. Right, 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 right. You're not in trouble. <sighs> <laughs> Thank you. If you say so, then. Yeah, you're fine. You're fine. Right. So I want to hear a little bit of your background before we get into the advice and people's questions, because y'all had a lot of questions. Mm-hmm. Um, I want to hear how you got into this. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I started out doing pretty much the exact opposite of what I do now. I went to a very, very strict evangelical Christian college where 
I actually had to sign a document saying that I wouldn't be gay. Well, actually Wait, it was, what? yeah, this is real. This is real. This was 2012. And I had to sign what was called at my school, a covenant. And I didn't explicitly say you won't be gay. It just said, you can't act gay. Like you can't act on your gayness. You can be gay. They're like, you can be gay, but just don't accept act that you might be gay, but just don't show it. Okay. Don't show it. So that's the document I signed willingly going into college. And I went to college to be a youth pastor. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, uh, I knew I was gay when I was like five years old. Um, oh, wow. But yeah, I have it. I actually have a video of myself. My dad is asking me if I have any boyfriends at school. And I'm, I say, I'm going to marry a girl. And I'm just so absolutely sure about this. That's very cute. And what was, so, what was your dad's response in the video? He said, he laughed and he said, <laughs> we, we love you no matter what, but we hope you're kidding. Uh, oh, yeah. Right. It's like- so mixed messages there. <laughs> you know, whatever year that was, that was probably a pretty progressive response other truly it's what it's the best I could have hoped for in what 1996 so exactly yeah um and so but I think like many many queer people I knew it and then I forgot it Mm -hmm. and I think that's a real thing Mm -hmm. um and so I forgot it and then it was sort of like halfway through college where I remembered it or I Mm -hmm. sort of realized that I had no choice but to confront this Mm -hmm. part of myself Um, And I actually was able to do that with my own therapist at the time. Um, And that's when I I shifted my major to psychology. And it was through my own therapy that I came to terms with my sexuality. My own therapist taught me how to have sex with women. My own therapist taught me how to have an orgasm. And I was like, oh my gosh, there's a career out there where we, like you could actually empower people in this way. Mm -hmm. And I think from there, it sort of was a no-brainer. It unfolded naturally. I no longer identify as religious. Um, much more, it's is embarrassing to say now, I'm like much more into astrology. That's sort of my religion, but apparently I'm not totally invested. You just don't know the order. That's okay. That's right. That's right. Um, but yeah, I think it was really through my own experience of therapy that I was like, okay, that is what I want to be when I grow up. I love that you said you kind of forgot you were gay. I never thought about that. And it makes so much sense that an innocent child who doesn't have all of these things that society puts on us of who we're Mm -hmm. supposed to be and how we're supposed to be, even thinking back, like the things we wanted to be when we grew up as kids, it's like, you could be an astronaut. And when NASA wasn't even running anymore, (laughs) we were like, yeah, I could be an, an astronaut because you don't have society telling you what they perceive as right or wrong or the church telling you that. Mm-hmm. And then you, well, yeah, like you said, you forget, you suppress right. that because everyone says you're not that right. Like even, even your dad's comment of being like, we love you, but we hope you're not mm-hmm. that. And who wants to disappoint their dad? I think totally. that's such a good point. Yeah. And I, you know, I say forgot as if it was like a passive thing that happened, but mm-hmm. to your point, it's not passive. It's not that yeah. I forgot. It's that it was very, very intentionally sort of like bred out of me Mm -hmm. to forget. Um, And I think, I think this happens to so many people. And I think especially people socialized as women because, um, because of compulsive heteronormativity, right? If you can look straight and if you can act straight, then you should, then you should be straight. Yeah, exactly. That process of changing careers and leaving the church, what was that like for you? Because I think it's, it's very easy to wrap up and summarize in a mm-hmm. few sentences. My, my girlfriend was also quite religious and then isn't as much anymore. Mm-hmm. And I think that's a really hard thing to do, especially as someone, as I'm perceiving, correct me if I'm wrong, that it was a really large part of your life. Oh, it was a huge part of my life. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. There's, there's no way to convey how painful that was in any narrative that I can give that we have time for. Um, but I will say, you know, the biggest loss there was community and people. Yeah. Uh, all of my friends were, or I would say 90% of my friends were of that religion. My family is of that religion. And so it wasn't just walking away from like the capital C church. It was also putting those relationships at stake mm-hmm. and hearing some very, very painful things from people that I really loved. Um, I was just telling my partner this story last night, actually, Um, that one of my friends who I came out to said, well, it's totally fine as long as I start thinking about you as a man. Like if I think about you as a man, 
then I can conceptualize this. And it's like, whoa, that is so interesting that you'd rather jump through the mental hoop mm-hmm. of seeing me as a different gender than just to integrate that I'm queer. Like that is so bizarre. And I as know. we know how the church views anyone who is trans, it's kind of right. surprising. I guess, I guess right. they were Ironic. okay to see you that way because you don't identify as trans. So they were like, well, for me, this is easier because the only way you could ever like a woman or anyone who is not a man would be if you're a man, you're a man. Right. Yeah. Incredible. Incredibly. Yeah. It's just amazing that that was easier for them. Have you had anyone come back now who had said very offensive things or hurtful things to you and now kind of wake up and realize that they don't believe that? Hmm. Well, I think actually, because I'm, I now have a social media presence, like I don't talk to anyone I went to college with anymore. So the only reason like people know or are in touch with me is through my social media account. And I did at one point, uh, post something about religious trauma. And I had a college roommate of mine post and say, or sort of comment on the post and say, gosh, I really think I was a part of the group of people that were saying these harmful things to you. And I'm so sorry if I was. And oh, wow. Yeah, it was, it was very emotional to see that comment. And mm-hmm. I, I honestly am glad it was a comment and not a direct reach out to me. Cause I don't think I really am interested in necessarily having those conversations, mm-hmm. but it did make me wonder if there are other people who, you know, 10 years later with 10 years more information that we had than, you know, 29 or 20, you know, 2014, mm-hmm. um, if maybe there are some changed minds, I, I don't know. I know a lot of them follow me on Instagram mm-hmm. and, and that's an interesting choice if you continue <laughs> to not be queer affirming. Well, you know, they, they may be or want to be or maybe queer themselves and mm-hmm. they're trying to get a little bit of insight. I, yeah, I think that'd be a oh, really weird position to be in. Uh, you know, it, that reminded me, the, uh, the one other thing that did happen is I used to lead a youth group where I literally taught people that homosexuality was wrong. Um, and I had a, a woman or a girl who's now a woman reach out to me and, and say, like, it has been so impactful to watch your journey. You were my youth group leader. And to see you go on this journey, like has helped me and other girls that you led come to terms with their own sexuality. Oh, wow. And so I, I carry so much guilt and shame for what I taught young girls during that time in my life. And so it was very hopeful to me that, um, that people watched my transformation and, and could, can see me in this new light and don't necessarily hold that against me. Um, and that was very healing for me. Yeah. It's, it's an interesting cycle and I understand you having guilt, but that guilt was that those ideas were placed on you and you were Mm -hmm. a victim of that. And unfortunately, that can create a cycle of victims. And I'm just, I'm so glad you broke that. And I think Mm. it like those other women who you led are coming out now saying how powerful it is to see you be you now and all that you do. Mm, Thank you. Yeah. I I think everything you just said is very true. Yeah. So well done for realizing (laughs) who you are and now you help so many people. Mm. I am a big fan of your social accounts. I, I have learned so much. So I actually, I want to jump into these questions. I typically just have a conversation with my guests. However, so many of you were so excited. I was having Casey on. I, I had actual messages being like, wait a minute, can we do a conference call where you bring us in? Because I have a lot of questions. I love that. Amazing. It's just really sweet. And by far the number one question. And I want to say that because I think it's Mm -hmm. really powerful to know that you're not alone in this. Any of these questions had multiple people asking them, but by far it was about how to approach different sex drives, how to approach having a low libido or just getting through after being in COVID with your significant other and working together and having a lot less sex than you were used to. Mm -hmm. People are people are concerned. They're worried they're not having enough sex or they're not being desired or desiring. Right. And I know that was kind of like a lot all in it. I just (laughs) cover everyone's different experiences because there was several different nuances in those questions that I sent Mm -hmm. you. So feel, feel free to speak on any level of that, but 
yeah. What do you say to somebody who's struggling with different sex drives or a low libido? Well, I'm so glad that you named that as the most common question because it's also the most common presentation that I see when I work with clients. Um, I think there's this massive misconception that when we meet a partner that's, you know, quote unquote, the one or that's right for us, that the sex part is just going to work and it's going to fall into place. And if it doesn't fall into place, then it should be some type of red flag about the relationship. And so I think a lot of concerns about mismatched libidos or what in the field we call desire discrepancy comes from, oh my gosh, what does this mean about our relationship? And what does this mean about our compatibility? Uh, but in reality, it's actually far more normal to find relationships wherein, wherein there is a desire discrepancy than there is to find people who work exactly the same way, which intuitively makes sense once, yeah. you, once you say it. Yeah. Um, but often what's going on when there's a desire discrepancy is you have people in the relationships who experience desire differently. And there are two main types of desire. One is a spontaneous desire and one is contextual desire. Mm -hmm. Folks who experience spontaneous desire are those folks who sort of get horny out of nowhere. Mm -hmm. They like wake up and they're ready to go. <laughs> People who have a more contextual desire need to be in a more specific situation that breeds their feelings of sexiness and of arousal. Mm -hmm. um, and so what's often happening is that one partner, typically the one that has that spontaneous arousal, uh, wants to have sex and the other person isn't there. And so mm -hmm. they read that as, oh my gosh, we want totally different things. Mm -hmm. But what's actually missing is just a bridge to help that lower desire partner get from where they are in that moment into a context that works for them sexually. And often the way to do that is fairly simple. Um, I think People get into trouble when they initiate sex in just like a very, very explicitly sexual way, like mm -hmm. wanting to start with penetration or wanting to start with nudity. When people with lower desire or what I was calling contextual desire often need a bridge and a bridge could be anything from an emotional connection, like let's cook dinner together beforehand or um, a sensual connection, like let's give each other a massage or let's take a shower together. But often what they need is something that is explicitly non-sexual that's connective in order for them to get their bodies to a place where they are ready for sex. Mm -hmm. And so a lot of it is just about slowing down, asking ourselves the question, like what contexts make me feel sexy? For some people, it's when my house is clean. For other people, it's, you know, when oh my I shave my me. legs, that's you. Okay. <laughs> we found it. <laughs> yeah. Everything you're saying. I'm like, yes, yes. Like we go on one date and like get to talk for five minutes to each other. And I'm like, now I want to have you're there when right. I wake up in the morning, maybe not so much when the house is clean. Oh yeah. <laughs> oh yeah. That does it for you. Right. And, and I mean, that is so many, that is so many people, but the reason that that's true is because when your house is clean, there's less clutter physically and there's mm -hmm. less clutter mentally. Like mm -hmm. the, the, pa the pathway is paved for you to be able to have what's called erotic focus mm -hmm. for your brain to be able to center itself on the act of, of like finding pleasure. Um, so that I, I think in a lot of ways that sort of covers the gamut of the questions you asked, yeah. because what we have with COVID is a context that is so not sexy, mm -hmm. a context <laughs> that is like totally not erotic. Mm -hmm. And so people that maybe pre COVID found themselves to be the type of people who could get horny out of nowhere may now not be feeling that anymore mm -hmm. because they're in this really unsexy context. And so it's finding the sexy context, even within this sort of overarching, like really kind of depressing context. And there's nothing yeah. that's happened to us. There's nothing that's wrong with us. Both spontaneous and contextual arousal are completely normal. Mm -hmm. um, but, it, but it's sort of about like getting creative and doing some investigative work into what works for you. Wow. I mean, I didn't think that this was going to be so helpful for me, but I'm already <laughs> like, wow, it makes so much sense. And, mm -hmm. um, I mean, I don't care. I'll be transparent about myself. I really don't like having sex when I'm anxious mm -hmm. or I'm like a lot's going on in life or I'm really busy or works crazy. Cause I will find myself unable to stop thinking about those yes. things. Like I'm a list mm -hmm. person. I have to get it out where I think about it. And then I, I get really nervous if I'm thinking about during, during sex. Cause I'm like, why am I, why am I thinking about my to-do list while I'm having sex? Like, I love this person. I'm so attracted to this person. Yeah. What am I doing? And then it makes me not want to have sex. Cause I feel wrong doing that more so than not having sex. Hmm. And it creates this really 
horrible cycle. And I think realizing that in yourself, one self-awareness is key. Like I, I just like live off of that, that I think if you know yourself, the good, the bad and everywhere in between, Mm -hmm. you're going to be golden in life. Um, but I think communicating that to your partner can be really hard. Even when you realize that, I think a lot of light bulbs are going to be going off for people listening to this episode, Mm -hmm. but do you have advice on how to communicate that to your person that you, you may need a little bit of a different context in order to feel sexy and want to be intimate? Mm -hmm. Well, one thing you just said, I think is, is going to really resonate with people, which is that it's not even so much your anxiety that prevents you from being sexual, but your anxiety about your anxiety, Yes. but you feel <laughs> like it's not okay to be anxious and to start mm-hmm. sex from a place that's anxious. So I just want to name that because I think that's something I hear a lot from people. Mm-hmm. Um, but in terms of communicating this to a partner, I think the best way to set up that conversation to, uh, for success is to really take ownership over what's going on for you and not make it about anything that your partner is doing if, if in fact your partner isn't doing anything wrong. Mm-hmm. And also starting the conversation from your why, like mm-hmm. why are you bringing up this conversation? And it sounds like from your perspective, from many people's perspective, the why is like, I wanna connect with you. I wanna have more sex. Like that, that is why I wanna talk mm-hmm. about this. And that is why I'm asking for this. It's not because you're doing anything wrong. It's not because there's a deficit. It's because as I'm learning about myself, I'm wondering if trying X, Y, or Z could actually set us up to have more sex. Mm -hmm. And I think that really puts the partner in a place to hear it without getting defensive and to say, okay, we're actually united in that goal. We both want to have more sex. Mm -hmm. We both want to be connected. And if you can sort of be that erotic team with that shared goal, Mm -hmm. um, I think that any feedback you give will then be heard through a lens of the benefit of the doubt. Yeah. I think that's great advice. I think with any argument in a mm-hmm. relationship to keep in mind that your team and you're working towards the same goal yes. is so beneficial. What about the flip side? If you mm-hmm. are the partner wanting to have more sex and you're listening to this thinking, oh, my partner might need a different context. How do you bring that up? Because I know that can create a lot of insecurities of, oh, you don't want me. I'm not good enough. I approach Mm -hmm. you for sex and get turned down and I don't want to keep getting turned down. So I'm going to stop. How does that partner then either bring it up or make changes to help their person? Yeah. I think approaching your partner, partners with curiosity saying like really explicitly, Hey, I learned this thing today. Mm -hmm. I learned about the difference between spontaneous and contextual arousal And this kind of sounded like you. So like, do you think this sounds like you? So first sort of like allow your partner to meet you where you're at and then like share those definitions because they can be really helpful Mm -hmm. and then say, okay, well, if this is you, can we brainstorm together? What types of context might work for you? Here's what I've seen. Mm -hmm. I've seen that when we go on a date, like you're, you're much more open to sex after that. I've seen that on Saturdays and Sundays when you don't have work, you're much more open to sex. Like, do you think that those contexts work for you mm-hmm. and making it a collaborative brainstorm process, allowing them to meet you where you're at with this new knowledge that you have. I think that also sets you up to not get a defensive response. Mm-hmm. Wow. That's perfect. You you're saving relationships right here. I, just, <laughs> I feel it. <laughs> well, I think that's the beauty of sex education is sometimes there are just such small, simple, factual things that, that change people. And what's sad is that we're missing that in our sex education. Mm -hmm. And so I do, I love giving those like small nuggets that truly are like, wow, why didn't I know this when I was 12? Yeah. It seems so simple, but unfortunately the way we learn about sex is so, I don't even know how to explain it. It's horrible. Mm -hmm. I mean, our education system alone is just a mess, but our sex ed is, it's terrible. We learn nothing. I can't believe that growing up and I, maybe it's changed now. And maybe some people listening, you had this in your school, but we were, we were only told about straight cis sex. That's it. That there was nothing else. There was nothing about anyone being non-binary. There was nothing about being gay or queer or pansexual, nothing. nothing. And I think, how do you talk about sex to a group of young adults without leading with that? Right. Yeah, no, it's very, very Mm fear-based coming from the perspective of here of all the things you want to avoid, pregnancy, Mm -hmm. STIs, HIV, AIDS, Mm -hmm. and not at all from a place of what are we actually seeking when we have sex? It's pleasure. Yeah, We don't talk about that at all. Yeah. 
It's, and I think adults get scared to talk about that with kids, but I feel like there's so many safe ways to do it that you're going to protect your kids from trauma and pain in the future. If you could just be open about discussing it. Truly. Yeah. I think any effort to have these conversations is better than silence because Mm -hmm. silence also gives a very explicit message, which is that we should not be talking about this. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. The next question, um, kind of comes off of this a little bit, but gets into a little bit of a different area of why intimacy may not be matching up. And I had, again, this was one with a lot of questions, people asking how to provide a safe intimacy, a safe intimacy with partners who deal with body dysmorphia or gender dysmorphia. Yeah. Yeah. Well, body dysmorphia and gender dysphoria are two really different things. Mm -hmm. Um, And so, uh, so hard to tackle both at one time, but I think that one thing that they do have in common is that it's really important to follow the person's lead Mm -hmm. in terms of what their language is for their body. So my specialty is in working with trans and gender nonconforming folks. So I'll maybe speak a little bit more to the uh, dysphoria part of this. Um, I think that we uh, have so gendered our bodies. There are certain bodies we associate with femininity and certain bodies that we associate with masculinity. And one of the most supportive things you can do for a partner who's experiencing gender dysphoria is to decouple that, right? Like chests don't have to be labeled as breasts or chests, Mm -hmm. right? Like we can choose to use the language that works best for the person that we're having sex with. Um, I also think we don't have to always touch people's bodies in a gendered way. Like Mm -hmm. there's a very different way that we think about touching breasts than we think about touching chests. And when you think about it, it's sort of strange because both, both people have, or or all genders have nipples that are connected Mm -hmm. to the same pleasure center in the brain. Why are we sort of like groping and handling one and like Mm -hmm. stroking the other? Um, And I think once we decouple that and we actually just ask our partners, how do you like this part of your body to be touched? Then we can touch it in a way that facilitates gender euphoria instead of gender dysphoria. Yeah. Um, yeah, go ahead. I think, I think a lot of people, and maybe you can, this is a little bit of a different topic, but the concept in specifically lesbian relationships of tops and bottoms, Mm -hmm. I always think is quite funny. (laughs) Um, and I, I have not experienced those clear cut sides, I guess we'll say. Um, and I have noticed from friends or people who really do identify top or bottom. I've noticed a lot of people who identify as lesbians who only want to be a top do have some, some kind of ill feelings about their body and are afraid Mm -hmm. to be touched in those ways. Mm -hmm. Are there any practices that those individuals could try to to unlinking and they could ask for like the different touching or mm-hmm. I don't know, are there any, are there any like homework you can give our mm-hmm. audience on how to explore their body and separate mm-hmm. that gender from it? Yeah. I think it involves a lot of giving yourself permission to break the rules that you've been taught. Mm-hmm. One of them is that we're supposed to be totally naked when we have sex. And I think that can be really, really vulnerable for people, especially people with body dysphoria or dysmorphia. Mm-hmm. Um, I know a lot of folks who, who really love like having, having sex with a t-shirt on or having sex and keeping their boxers or their underwear on, Mm -hmm. um, as a way of being able to remain present rather than getting distracted by potentially a part of their body that elicits that kind of dysphoria or dysmorphia. So that's one rule that I would say, like, take that off the table, wear whatever you need to wear during sex Mm -hmm. in order to enjoy it. I like if, like, if you're somebody that likes to have the lights on, have them on, but if having the lights off actually helps you be more connected with your body, Mm -hmm. that's okay. Break that rule. Um, it's okay to ask people to refer to your body parts in a way that's different from what they were taught. I mean, this is like one of the most disturbing things to me that like so many of our body parts were just named after the men who quote unquote discovered them. Like the names of our body parts are so arbitrary that if you have a word that you use to describe your body that you can share with your partner and that they can use when referring to you and that helps you manage your dysphoria, then, then like break that rule, uh, mm-hmm. break that rule of what these things are supposed to biologically be called. Yeah. So it's a lot of noticing the rules first because you have to notice them to break them Mm -hmm. and then allowing yourself to break them and also you know choosing partners who are willing to go there with you Mm -hmm. 
wow, it's so much of this seems so obvious, but because (laughs) of the way we are taught and the way we grow up, it's even the idea of leaving a shirt on. I know I have gotten out of shape since COVID Mm -hmm. and I have felt not the comfiest in my body. And I like the idea of just eliminating those anxieties and those fears and things that you can get hung up on and not focus on the actual intimate act that you're trying to do with your partner. And I think there's this idea of like, if I wear a t-shirt, that's distracting because it's clear that I'm Mm. showing my insecurity. Mm. But Mm. if you're with the right partner and you just tell them, this is going to help me get there with you and feel a lot better. That's so powerful and honestly can be a really an intimate moment with your person by sharing those feelings before you yes. become physical. Totally. Yes. I, I mean, I love the body positivity and the body acceptance movement, but I think the flip side of that is that we end up feeling shame if we yeah. do something like choosing yeah. to keep a shirt on. And to your point, it's not black and white. And mm-hmm. sometimes keeping a shirt on is the most intimate thing that you can do depending mm-hmm. on who you are and what your context is. So yeah, I, I totally agree with that. Yeah. I love that. And I think also, of course, I can only speak for myself and only being intimate with a woman. I, well, not, I'm not a gold star. I don't want that rumor to get out. That's not true. I'm not. (laughs) Tell that rumor right now. (laughs) But currently in my adult life, I have only (laughs) been with women. And I think it also adds kind of a layer of pressure where if my partner is feeling insecure about their body, it makes me think about Mm-hmm. my body and that they may be yeah. insecure about mine as well. I don't know. I don't know what advice is in there, but I just, mm-hmm. it was something I, that popped in my head of, wow, my insecurities can make my partner feel insecure mm-hmm. or her insecurities can make me mm-hmm. feel insecure. Mm-hmm. And it's just such a, it's a vicious cycle when we're yeah. both obsessed with each other. <laughs> Total. Well, th- that's exactly what I was going to say. I think this is so common. And I think maybe particularly common for femme lesbians, mm-hmm. um, because we're, we're taught to compare ourselves to other women our whole lives. Yeah. So then when we're partnered with one, yeah, why would we not compare ourselves? That's natural. Mm-hmm. But as you just said, you know, that the types of criticism you're giving your own body are things you would never in a million years say to the person that you're dating. Yeah. Uh, and so think. reminding yourselves <laughs> of that, right. Thank God. Thank God. That's not how we talk to each other, mm-hmm. but also like, why are we still talking to ourselves that way? It's a whole, that's a whole other podcast. Yeah. Yeah. We, <laughs> we can, I'll have you back on. We'll get into that. Right, but right. Yeah. It's just, it's crazy to think that. And it's, it's hard to see your partner feel any negative thoughts towards yeah. their body when you just think every right. little inch of it's perfect. Yeah. I, I know exactly what you mean. <laughs> um, okay. I'm going to, I'm going to skip the next question. We're going to go back to it. I want to talk to you about, is the orgasm gap a real thing? And I want to ask you because I literally have no idea what the orgasm gap is. I'm going to, oh, great. I'm going to own up perfect. to being uneducated here. <laughs> what is it? Tell the listeners and myself yeah. who don't know. <laughs> totally. So the orgasm gap is referring to Um, the major difference in orgasms experienced by cis men and cis women, Mm -hmm. being that cis men are orgasming a ton more than cis women are. And that cis men are actually, when interviewed, valuing their orgasm and their pleasure more than cis women are. And so when we talk about the pleasure gap, we're talking about a gap that really mirrors other gaps and other inequities Mm -hmm. in society, right? Like it's sort of, it's sort of like the pay gap, but translated into sex. And it is very, very so real everywhere. Yeah. It's unfair everywhere. Right. It's unfair everywhere. And it's, it comes out of so many myths about women and sexuality and mm-hmm. so many myths about vulvas, like that there's some type of, you know, mysterious body part that can't be hacked when in reality, like it's fairly simple. Mm-hmm. And once you know where the clitoris is, it's like not that hard. Um, but there's still this mythology that it's so hard and that it's so mysterious. And I think that's that's one of the main things that fuels this gap and continues continues to um, to increase the gap between the pleasure that cis men and cis women experience. Mm-hmm. And you know, I want to name too. This this applies to people of all genders, not just mm-hmm. cis men and women. The research has only looked at cis men and women. Yeah, that makes sense. And yeah, it can be reflected anywhere. And I think we grow up in a society that is very heteronormative. So you kind of just see that in any inch of your life, no matter what gender or sexuality you are, you present as. Um, 
talking about women and female pleasure, I feel like I get questions all the time of I'm going to have sex with a woman for the first time. Mm-hmm. I'm terrified. Mm-hmm. What do I do? And that's a question <laughs> I have never answered yeah. because I, well, I, that's not true. I think I've answered a couple of times and thought, and I, I've said to people like, do what you enjoy. You have, you kind of have the secrets because you are a woman. Cause that's the only gender who has asked me. Well, <laughs> men probably have asked me and I have not answered that. <laughs> Um, but you, you kind of have like the little secret handbook of knowing yourself and we're all different and we all enjoy different things, but start there. And from my experience, women are much better communicators. So Mm -hmm. just talk about it. But do you have advice for anyone who is a little lost in the sex department with women? Well, I'm thinking back to the first time I had sex with a woman and I, I knew nothing, but I know that I was like so enthusiastic about it. Oh, was, oh yeah. Right. Like <laughs> I was thrilled. I've been waiting my whole life for this moment. And if you can bring that energy into the sex, like mm-hmm. you're halfway there. Oh yeah, um, definitely. Right. So much of being quote unquote good at sex is just about following your desire, doing the thing that you want to do and expressing when you're enjoying some expressing your enjoyment. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that's something that even people who have been having sex for 20 years sometimes struggle to do. So if you have an authentic desire to have sex with this person and it's exciting and nerve wracking, show up authentically and eagerly. And I think that eagerness is often felt as a really great sex partner. Uh, I also think that laughing during sex is so important. And thank you for saying that. I think that's the best. I don't understand. Like, I don't think you can have (laughs) awkward sex if you just laugh, laugh it off. Right. Right. And like, even if you've been having sex for 50 years with a particular gender, like your body's going to make a weird noise or there's going to be like some type of smell or that like, there's so many things that could be perceived as awkward. Mm -hmm. Um, and so I think that one of the best qualities you can have as a sex partner is an ability to not take yourself or a partner too seriously. Mm-hmm. That is incredible advice. And yeah, I, I don't think there's, there's no, there's no little book of what to do exactly when mm-hmm. you're having sex with any gender, because every person is different, no matter who they are, yes. no matter what their gender, their sexuality, everyone wants and has different needs and desires. So having that, I love just bringing enthusiasm to the table and mm-hmm. just have the willingness to like, just go with it and let it happen and flow. And if it's awkward, you just laugh it off and just, right. it doesn't have to be so serious Mm-mm. and uptight. No. And if, and if this is a person that you end up, you know, going on another date with or having sex with again, like debrief it after the mm-hmm. fact, like, how was that for you? Yeah. Is there anything you would want to be different? I love a good sexual debrief. Yeah. I love that transparency, a debrief. Oh my God. That's incredible. <laughs> I'm going to start doing that. The postmortem. Yes. <laughs> so a lot of other people had a lot of questions on being monogamous, being polyamorous. Mm-hmm. How do you know? I think I think it's something that can get very confusing when it's something we are told by our society, monogamy, monogamy, monogamy. So when you start questioning society on so many levels, I think people can question that too. I myself know that monogamy is the life for me. I'm very (laughs) aware of that. Yeah. But I think it's, it's something that's hard to explore, to know what you want, especially if your partner doesn't want that. So how, how can someone kind of figure out if they're monogamous, if they're polyamorous and Mm -hmm. how, yeah. How do you explore that? Totally. I think that we have to be able to lower the stakes for people in trying and experimenting with monogamy or non-monogamy. I think there's so much pressure to know and then to, to follow what you know, but like in, in so many ways, how can you really know until you try? And there are people who really do know at their core without ever trying what's right for them, like you. Um, but there are many, many more people who are, are sort of confused. And I think especially Gen Zers who like these, this menu of options has been available from like a much mm-hmm. younger age. Um, I think that one misconception about whether or not one should be polyam is uh, if you're jealous, then you probably shouldn't be. And I think that's a myth. I don't think that you have to have no jealousy whatsoever to successfully engage in polyamory. I think what's so much more important is your ability to communicate about that jealousy. And to your point earlier, like self-awareness is the name of the game when it comes to polyamory or non-monogamy. 
it's not that you're not going to have negative reactions and negative emotions that come up, but it's going to be to the degree to which you and your partner and partners are able to talk that out with each other, to set aside those check-in times, um, and to be able to, to name all the things that are inevitably going to come up in that process. So I would say, don't ask yourself necessarily whether or not you're jealous, but ask yourself if you're up for a lot of very intense communication. Mm -hmm. um, I think that's actually something that monogamous folks like, like you and me can learn from polyam folks is mm -hmm. like how to have those really, really tough conversations about emotions like jealousy. Um, but I also think that, you know, a, a sign to me that polyam might be right for you is if you find monogamy limiting, mm -hmm. right? If it like leaves you wanting, if you're in a relationship with someone you love, you're happy with, but there's still a sense that there's a limitation and both people are on board with trying it. I think that's really important. Mm -hmm. Like not dragging one partner into non-monogamy when only one person is sure that they want it. I think it's very important for this to be a joint decision. Yeah. Um, and I also think that, you know, they say don't start being non-monogamous in order to save a relationship. And I think there's some truth to that. Mm -hmm. If the relationship is bad as it is, like don't open it, that mm -hmm. it's not gonna make it better. But if the relationship is good, except for it feels a bit limiting, I think that is a really reasonable place to start thinking about polyamory. Um, but sort of my summary of that is like, you never really know until you try and, and you don't have to put the pressure to know 100% before you maybe explore it. Yeah. Is there a way to tell that? Well, I mean, I guess, I guess it just comes down to self-awareness and your awareness in the relationship, but is there a way for somebody to tell that it's not the relationship that's not working mm -hmm. and it's not the person that feels limiting, mm -hmm. but it's monogamy that feels limiting. Mm -hmm. I would look out when, if, and when conflict is coming up in the relationship, what is it about? Mm -hmm. Is it about the core dynamics between you and this one other person? Or is it about a mutual desire to have other connections outside of the relationship? Like if the, if the conflict is consistently about a, a sort of a, um, the personalities not meshing or not being on the same page or having the same values, I think potentially you're looking at a core relationship issue, but if the shared values are there, if there's a lot of compatibility and the conflict that's coming up is about the limitations of monogamy, I think that's a cue that, that, you know, potentially non-monogamy is a thing that's going to work. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that makes sense. Mm -hmm. I am curious about your opinions on labels. I mm. feel like, my personal opinion, they can be so helpful to give you an identity and a place and kind of understand yourself better, especially when the world hasn't given you these options. But I also feel that they can be extremely limiting. I've seen it happen. I've, I, again, I speak through a lens of a lesbian woman and most people who I have these discussion with are also lesbian women, mm -hmm. um, who have, who have, I've, I've watched people get ridiculed for being a lesbian and then mm -hmm falling in love with a man and everything mm -hmm. they were praised for being open to loving who mm -hmm. they love, they are now yeah. pulled down for. And it's really hard. And it's kind of given me a sour taste in my mouth for labels. And I caution younger individuals to feel the pressure to, to pick a label because I yeah. think it's a box you're never going to fully fit into every corner of, and that's mm -hmm. okay. And that's why life is so cool that you're not mm. just one thing. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. So what are your opinions on the good and the bad of labels? Yeah. I, I'm very aligned with everything you're saying. I made a post maybe six months ago saying that you can still identify as a lesbian if you sometimes sleep with men. Mm -hmm. And that actually was a post that came out of personal experience because I'm a lesbian and I've at times slept with men. Mm -hmm. And that was my most controversial post that I have ever made. Mm -hmm. And I never gotten so much hate mail actually after a post. And I just really Ugh. felt how threatening that idea was to people. Mm -hmm. um, and so I, I think labels are helpful until they're not. Um, I think that, you know, when we're coming out as queer, there's a need for the straights as people in our lives to be able to put us in a box which puts so much pressure on us to sort of choose one way or another. I think that's the source of a lot of biphobia is yeah. that bi people feel so invisible that they might end up selecting a label like lesbian or gay while actually potentially like being bi or being pan is more authentic for them. Mm -hmm. But there is so much pressure to, to enact heteronormativity. I mean, even the pressure to like 
act like a top or a bottom or who's the man in the relationship? Who's the women in the relationship? Like there's still ways in which we're trying to mirror straight relationships in our queer relationships. And I think that sometimes labels contribute to that. So never gonna, you know, never gonna um, judge someone for loving a label because I think um, that is what got us here. That is what got us the rights that we have. Mm -hmm. But I think that also we have to sort of like hold them loosely and be willing to question them um, when they start to be exclusive. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I I totally agree. And I think, you know, the reason why so many lesbians are fear the comments that you made, and I think your post is so powerful and so beneficial. So I'm glad that you did mm-hmm. it. But I think there's a lot of fear because even just going to bars, I've had, I can't count the number of times that a cis man has said to me, like, you just need the right guy to change you or like any, there's a plethora of horrible comments I have been told, um, by also lesbian women as well, not to, not to just throw it all on the cis men of the world. Um, even though that can feel easy to do. (laughs) Yeah. And I, and I think you want to, you want to prove those people wrong almost of it makes you never want to associate that. And even, I think I shared this in a recent podcast. One time my mom was sharing with me. She went to a psychic and the psychic said, yes, your daughter's a lesbian, but she will ultimately end up with a man. And I was so young then. I don't know. I was maybe, Mm. maybe 18, 19. And I remember thinking in my head, I don't, I don't care if that happens just to make sure I, to spite my mom (laughs) and to not fulfill that. I will never, ever, ever Mm -hmm. care about a man in that way. And that's never come up. I've never had to spite my mom in that sense. I (laughs) only loved women, but I think that that caused, it caused like reverse in the closet for so many people because you're just so afraid what those ramifications are going to be. If you truly just allow yourself to like someone because you like them. Right. Right. Totally. I mean, you're right. It comes out of fear. And I think the origins are a very, very valid legitimate fear of, of our safety being violated and our consent being violated. Um, but in reality, if our consent is violated, it's not because of the label that we have. It's because there's an asshole who violated your consent. And I think we have to remember the difference. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's not, it's not your, it's not your problem. It's not the Mm -mm. people, it's not my mom who I wanted to spite. It's yeah. It's the very awful situations we've had of people trying to tell us who we are. Yes. Um, I want to go back to the question I skipped because I think Mm. it is extremely important. And again, so many people asked it. The question is, what are your tips for developing meaningful sexual intimacy with Mm. sexual trauma survivors? Yeah. I, I take the stance where it's totally possible to be sexually empowered after experiencing a sexual trauma, but it often does take time. Mm -hmm. And I think that, um, something that many trauma survivors, including myself experience is that there's often like a rational readiness to have sex before maybe the body is ready. And there can be a difference because trauma lives in the body and things trigger us that we're not even conscious of. It could be a smell. um, It could be a quick movement. Mm -hmm. um, But I think that if you're a partner of someone who's a trauma survivor, probably the most important tool I can equip you with is the ability to not take it personally, Mm -hmm. to know that if the person is not desiring sex, if they have a negative reaction during sex, they need to stop in the middle of sex. Like nine times out of 10, that is not going to be about something that you did wrong. That is going to be about something from the past that is coming up in the present. Mm -hmm. So, um, so that's one way that I would uh, support a, a trauma survivor. I think that for the survivor themselves, what can be so scary after consent is violated is the potential that consent could be violated again by another partner or even like by, by yourself. Mm-hmm. What if I have sex that I don't want to have again? And often what I see is people being really afraid to engage in sex at all because they're so worried that they might do something that, that pushes themselves or violates their own consent. Mm-hmm. Um, And so I think a lot of recovery from trauma as it relates to sex is restoring your trust in yourself. Mm -hmm. That like, this is still your body. You still have ownership over it. You still get to say stop when you want to say stop. Um, There is nothing that you did wrong in that situation. I think that needs to be very clear. And there's nothing that the partner is doing wrong by initiating or desiring sex. Mm -hmm. Um, 
when I work with folks struggling with this, I usually like to hit the reset button with mm -hmm. couples. And I usually will actually take sex off the table for a while mm -hmm. and ask people to reset back to a place that maybe they were when they were like 12, where they're just having really great makeout sessions with their clothes <laughs> on. And I, I, I sort of pull them back to start from a place that they know is safe. Mm -hmm. Like sex doesn't feel safe, but making out feels safe. Let's mm -hmm. start there. And then maybe let's slowly introduce, okay, what would it be like to like, you know, not to, not to be so stereotypical, but to like go to second base now, mm -hmm. like, what would it be like to do this with your shirt off? And like very, very slowly and systemically finding their way back to sex, but making sure that they feel safe at every step of the way. Mm -hmm. um, so I think uh, a great move for people in relationships with trauma survivors and for trauma survivors is to expand the definition of sex yeah. to include things that maybe feel a little bit old school, but mm -hmm. feel baseline safe. Yeah. I think that's such a good point. And how you said in the beginning that the trauma is living in your body. Yeah. And I think that can be really frustrating for trauma survivor survivors, feeling ready mentally feeling yes. there and yeah. even initiating sex sometimes. And then halfway yes. through realizing that your, your body's just not ready. Yeah. So I, yeah, I think that that's a great way to approach it of taking it step by step because then you can kind of figure out where your baseline is and where mm -hmm. you, where that trauma is hitting and what parts of your body might even be affected so that you can kind yes. of work around it and learn. You, it's, it's hard to learn what is going to trigger your body without trying sometimes. Right. So by doing that in such a safe environment, I think is really beneficial. Yeah. I and mean, that's the thing about trauma is we can be with a partner that's a hundred percent safe and we can mm -hmm. still not feel safe. Mm -hmm. And I think that discrepancy is really, really hard for people to hold, but like that is the mechanism of trauma. And if you're experiencing that, like that is absolutely normal and your body needs time. Mm -hmm. Wow. This is so amazing. Casey, <laughs> you're wonderful. I, I, yeah, I just, as I have said so many times throughout this, so much of it feels like a no brainer right. and when you're saying it, I'm like, yes, of course, <laughs> duh. But sometimes you just have to hear it and look at things a little bit differently. And yeah. Wow. That is so incredible. Mm -hmm. I now want to have a sex therapist that I get to talk to all the time. Cause I love that feeling of like the light bulb going off and being feeling, I feel so empowered yeah. after this, oh. which is really incredible. And I'm sure a lot of people listening are feeling that way too. So thank you. Oh, that makes me, yeah, that makes me so, so, so happy. I think everybody deserves sex therapy um, mm -hmm. because it makes such a difference when you know that it's science, right? Like yes. I'm not making this up. This is evidence-based. Yeah. I think a lot of times when there's issues with intimacy in a relationship, you can feel kind of crazy and like there's yeah. something wrong with you. And this was really empowering on so many, all the subjects we covered of it's not you, you just mm -hmm. kind of need to communicate and get some self-awareness and make sure your partner's aware and things will, things will sort of fall into place. And if they're not yeah. still go check out Casey. I'm sure she can help you out more. <laughs> can you please let everyone know where they can find you and follow yeah. you and hear more of what all the great work you do? Yeah. Yeah. Easiest way is to go to Instagram at queer sex therapy, and you can find all my other links from there. Perfect. Thank you so much. Thank you all for listening. Don't forget to rate and subscribe the show. I would really appreciate it. And I'll see you all next week. Bye.